you know where your phone is right now? Apologies to the folks who just kind of paused the podcast or looked around in a panic to try and make sure they located their phones, but I hope that kind of underscores the importance of that device. But why is your phone so important? It's the key that connects you to the world. But that's not what the key unlocks. It's merely what you see on the other side of the door. The door that the key unlocks is simple. Hello? It's communication. If you can effectively communicate with someone, then there isn't a need for marketing or sales or even product. Your ability to convey value to a customer is what allows you to make a transaction possible. So if you can't communicate well, then increasing the bottom line will just end up being an excruciating uphill battle. In a world where everyone is fighting for interrupting thumb scrolls and surviving inbox purges, you need to be effective with your messaging. You need someone to guide you in the right direction, and you need someone like Patrick Moorhead. Patrick is the CMO at PriceFX with stopovers at Catalina Marketing and Twitter, and immediately after talking to him, I could just tell that this is someone who is adept at marketing and messaging. But don't take my word for it. His thoughts and wisdom are coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Patrick Moorhead dives deep on marketing. We talk about making pricing accessible, tech-enabled demand generation, the rich tapestry cadence of MoFu, creating a sticky, attractive content environment, and tackling the 12-legged deal. Hi, my name is Patrick Moorhead, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at PriceFX. Yeah, and what does PriceFX do? PriceFX is a leading pricing optimization and management and CPQ software company. We were founded in Germany 10 years ago. We've been on a tear of growth since. We currently operate in Europe out of three offices, our primary one being Prague. We have a central U.S. location in Chicago and a small outpost in Brisbane, Australia. And we use those locations to bring our world-class award-winning SaaS solution for pricing optimization, management, and configure price quote delivery to more than 150 customers worldwide and growing. No, that's awesome. Yeah, that's good. Clearly you run marketing over there or something with communication. <laughs> that was a nice tight explanation. What is it with the Germans and pricing? You know, you got Simon Kutcher, you know, came out of it. You got price effects. It's always funny to kind of see there's a lot of German companies that do pricing. What I'm kind of curious about is I'm in the pricing space, you know, which is a very small space, obviously. Tell folks a little bit more about like, why is the software that you, you guys use and have, like, why is it important? Like maybe yeah. don't go as deep as what is a CPQ, but like, why right. is this crucial? Like what's, what's the value prop for a lot of businesses and what types of businesses do you sell to? That's a great question. You know, for me, I'm a pricing outsider. I come from the sort of ad agency world. And then I, I worked in big data advertising, ad targeting and social media. And so uh, when I joined the company nearly two years ago, I was fully transparent, like I don't understand pricing at all. And I've priced things, you know, I would still <laughs> say I don't really understand pricing. So it's been really revealing to me, A, to learn that I actually do know quite a bit about pricing and everyone does just because we all have done it at some point, right? Even a lemonade stand at some point, you have to sort of figure out what people are willing to pay or how much it's gonna cost you to set it up, right? And we buy things every day. And so our familiarity with pricing is almost so close that you don't yeah. see it in the abstract. 
So I've, I've been surprised to learn that I knew more than I thought I did about pricing. But to answer your question, one of the really surprising things that I've learned is that in enterprise sales and B2B enterprise business relationships, there are a shocking amount of huge companies that don't understand their own pricing or that are scared of their own pricing and that use the most rudimentary tools available to do this work. And I think, you know, depending on who you ask, there's a rough estimate that of enterprises above a billion dollars in annual revenue, somewhere between 30 and 50% of those companies manage their pricing via spreadsheets. Yeah. Right. So these are companies with huge portfolios of products, huge, you know, even individual deals for these companies can be in the the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars per transaction. And they're manufacturing things on these giant, you know, SAP ERP backbones that are globally administrated. And the pricing that they're feeding into those is coming from a spreadsheet that was built by an employee that no longer works for the company and has formulas that no one really understands how they work and everyone's afraid to open it too much because we'll break it. And that's just shocking to me when you think about the scale of the businesses and the scale of the money and how under-treated and fragile the pricing aspect of those is Mm. considering how fundamental price is to every transaction that occurs across the world. You know, the answer to your question is that's where I think our, our software is really powerful. It's the founders of PriceFX had a terrific vision. And what we've been able to do is create the first legitimate SaaS solution in, in pricing. And it's a viable path to growing up from pricing with spreadsheets into an enterprise compatible piece of software that will centralize and drive efficiency and scale towards you know, the global footprint of a variety of of different businesses. And we've been able to do that in a way that is sort of cost conscious and time conscious compatible with the way the enterprises want to work today, right? So you don't have to throw away the spreadsheet and then invest multiple millions of dollars in two years of your life to make this transformation with price effects. We've tried to make it accessible, somewhat affordable, and keep the emphasis on impact and value. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too, because most of the time in, in those size of companies, depending on the price point that they're selling at, and obviously there's tons of products for, for these folks, it's either just the sales team is, is, has anarchy. Basically, sales is like, just don't discount this much. But really, the list price is also all over the place, so it doesn't really matter. Or there's like the fake organization of the spreadsheet, which is like, again, no one opens it. No one wants to look at it. Like the deal you know, kind of process is terrible because of it. Mm. Why is that such a problem, right? And this is something yeah. you know, being in the pricing game for a while, I also struggle with is like, why are people just not really caring about this type of stuff? I don't think it's that they don't care. Certainly, I think there's been a coalition in the pricing solutions software industry for some time that has wanted to figure out how to make pricing critically relevant to senior leadership and C-suite, right? How do we get pricing to matter in the C-suite and the boardroom? And I find that interesting because A, I think that pricing does matter quite a bit to those people, but also no one has really done the hard work of making the knobs and dials of pricing accessible to those senior type leaders, right? If you put yourself in the shoes of those folks, you have a situation where price does matter increasingly, especially in the context of a world where 
the brand perception of the customer is sort of intrinsically linked between the product, the brand, the buying experience, and the price is a part of the buying experience. Like that's a triangle anymore, right? There's not a difference between the brand promise and the thing I'm holding in my hand or, or shipping into the warehouse, right? So I think senior leadership in companies cares quite a bit about price and doesn't know what to do about it because the tools and the conversation that needs to happen in order for it to matter in the context of a strategic conversation are so complicated or have been so complicated that they're just not accessible, right? And so you get a guy who's really smart, you get a woman who's really smart and you give them some computer stuff to do the math because it's so hard, right? That you put it over there and that gives you the ability to sort of still think about it. Let me ask the question, can we achieve 2% profitability growth next year through price? I don't know how to answer that. I want to answer that. I think that's kind of the situation of, of a senior executive who's thinking pricing questions, but so far hasn't been given the self-serve tools to go and look at the data themselves, to go and run models and scenarios, to go and try to answer some some questions themselves, because up to us, maybe, the tools have required a PhD level understanding, right, in order to be able to operate them. That's what I think is really neat about what we're doing. And I'm biased, of course, but I think we have this sort of idea of making it accessible. I think the approach has been wrong too. I think it's not a matter of we've got to find a way to make pricing relevant to senior leadership in the boardroom. Yeah, We know it is, you know, it is, it's not about making it relevant. It's about making the relevancy that they know exists accessible and, and useful. Yeah. To them, right. Yeah. The barrier part, I think that's the hardest thing. And I think the other thing in the pricing space is that exactly what you just said about the PhDs. When I started writing about pricing, I was learning myself, right? And it was one of those things where I would write an article that was, you know, from the PhD level, very basic, but would resonate mm-hmm. so much with the VP of marketing, the chief mm-hmm. product officer, et cetera, because they don't have that PhD. They don't really care necessarily about all the theories. They care about like the first layer mm-hmm. of the theory. They want to know more practicality of like, how do I That's actually right. like do this? How do I actually yeah. implement? How do I make it accessible? How do I make it easy? That's kind of funny because I think that over the past like seven years of, of publishing on pricing, that's the stuff that's resonated. And I think it's kind of where things are going. And as the market continues to kind of evolve, I think it's it's going to become even more relevant. That's what I'm excited about what you guys are doing. That's why I refer folks because we, we kind of handle the research insights and then you guys kind of take the wheel of actual implementation yeah. and things like that. And so appreciate that perspective. One thing that's kind of interesting and I was really curious about with how you build, you know, are over 150 companies now as customers, you're kind of on that mid-market enterprise path, right? You know, raising 65 million this year, I should say in 2020 when this was reported. And then in addition to that, only having over 150 customers means they must be paying you a good amount, right? That strategy is very little more field sales, a little more events, these types of things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that kind of went away or almost all went away in 2020. Like what was that like? And you know, what did you pivot to, to continue to be successful? it was really hard was what it was like. And that's from a company that was arguably 80% virtual operations prior to the pandemic, right? We have in the neighborhood of 500 employees, if you include contractors globally, and we're spread all to the wind. You know, we've got Chicago, 
as our U.S. base. We've got Prague as our Europe base, but we've got people in Paris and London, all over Germany. We've got folks in Southeast Asia. We've got folks in Australia. Almost none of our U.S. sales team operates out of the Chicago facility that we operate as our, our headquarters. They're all, you know, in their territories. So we were a highly virtual company from that point of view, but our salespeople were a hundred percent about being at the customer site and our solution salespeople and our implementation people, uh, our whole training around onboarding new customers to use the software was built around everyone comes to the office five day, you know, eight to five workshops with dinners and all those kind of things. Right. Yeah. As we walked into 2020, you know, I had a seven figure event marketing plan that we were going ready to go execute, you know, across all the different pricing industry events. And then some other places we're trying to play into more of the, maybe the Silicon Valley world, or, you know, we were in the process of raising money earlier in the year. So we were having those venture and PE type discussion. So obviously the seven figure event budget evaporated as did the travel budget for the sales team. We had enough infrastructure in place from a virtual operations point of view when it happened that I actually was surprised and pleased with how easily some of that stuff was able to transfer. Um, So our training and sort of sales enablement, our, you know, teams had to work hard in the early parts of it to move plans that they had in place for more virtual on-demand type training experiences. We compressed those and pulled them forward to make them happen this year as opposed to taking our time. I think, you know, our sales and solution folks were nervous at first and then we're quite surprised with how well it went to go into 100% virtual sales cycles with no dinners and no, you know, conference room meetings and and things like that. Um, That's not to make light of it or say it was easy, but I was surprised at how adaptable some of that stuff became. From the marketing point of view, there were two big areas that I went into 2020 really looking at from an execution point of view to drive funnel action for us. One of them was that event marketing footprint, which we've taken heavy advantage of over the years. And the other one was sort of piloting our new MarTech stack towards demand generation. And so the event budget getting scrubbed as a result of the pandemic actually put a hundred percent emphasis onto tech enabled demand generation. And it put a lot of pressure on that as well, good pressure. And so one of the upsides of the pandemic for us was enabling us in some ways to be nimble and aggressive about how we went towards building a more accountable and more responsive funnel marketing capability all through automation. It's kind of cool. One, the first thought I just had was you almost had like a seven-figure experimentation budget for that other side, right? Because it was like, we're not going to do these events. And what I'm kind of curious about is it's you're going after, you know, big dogs, right? We're not looking for $50 a month type customers where they're Mm -hmm. demand gen or direct. There's, you know, certain funnels and playbooks and things like that. Yeah. How do you approach like the fundamentals, like, you know, yeah. uh, of building this? So we talked about events. So there's some obvious things, events, sales enablement, these types of things. But maybe if we started from a clean slate and yeah. I, you know, came to you and I was like, hey, we, we have this product. We're going after, you know, these big dogs, my marketing, what should I do? Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. what's, what's kind of the answer? Let's kind of build a framework together here on, on how to yeah. get to that. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you think about a classic funnel, I would argue no matter what funnel you're in, but maybe 
particularly in enterprise software, building top of funnel volume is just a cash function, in my opinion. You can tinker with ad messages. You can tinker with audience targeting. That can make a difference here and there. But by and large, you buy what you get at the top of the funnel. And so you buy what you can afford, right? If I could spend $5 million building top of funnel awareness through search and display, then I would get $5 million worth of top of funnel. If I could spend 10, I would get 10 million worth of top of funnel. That doesn't automatically turn into a clean cascade through to closed one revenue. And so, you know, and again, this is me and sort of how we, we run our operation and kind of what we've learned, but calibrating your top of funnel investment in media and creative placement and sort of outreach type cold activation tactics can only be done if you can understand what it's going to take in the middle of the funnel to qualify and move a prospect from being interested to being engaged to being a buyer. And that is way harder than building top of funnel, right? I could add, you know, 10,000 new prospect contacts to my CRM over the next three months, provided someone gave me the money to do it, no problem. What do I do with them once I capture their attention? How do I position price effects as the trusted advisor, as the thought leader, as offering value for free to someone who's interested in us and a sign of good faith so mm-hmm. that they feel like they can trust us and they want to come back and, and continue to learn more. How do you teach rather than sell? Those are sort of the ideas that have helped us create what I think is a very successful and continues to evolve to be successful mid-funnel content marketing platform mm-hmm. that is designed to convert what we can afford to buy at the top of the funnel into high value engagement with qualified leads, then by the time they reach our commercial team are really well understood for the Mm -hmm. seller to come in and say, I get your business. I know your industry. Here's the stuff that we've done there. Here's how I understand the problems that you might have and diagnose those problems for you. And here's how my software fits in there. And it's a fundamentally more relevant conversation by the time a salesperson is in it, if marketing has done the work to educate the buyer on not only us, but in general about the industry, but then also been clever about how to watch that customer consume the education to infer the things we need to know about them to help them buy us. When you click on that middle of the funnel, then if we get more specific, like what's that cadence look like? Like, what are you doing? Is it simply like very detailed white papers down to certain verticals? Like what what does that look like? Bring it to life for us a little bit. Yeah, I would characterize it as a rich tapestry. And and, (laughs) it has to be a rich tapestry. It has to be a quilt. You can't, I don't think, be successful If you try to go deep without being really engaging about it. So I'll give you some examples. It may be easier to understand, right? Again, as a pricing outsider, I have the luxury of kind of looking at the way that content happens in the pricing industry and reacting to that as an outsider and saying, wow, did I read that from this company or this company or 
what everyone's talking about the same thing. And I remember telling a colleague early on when I started in the job is pricing marketing seems to me, it's just pricing people talking about pricing to pricing people. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. (laughs) It's not dimensional enough. And so I like this thought that everyone loves Star Wars, right? No matter whether you are a banker or a post officer, right? On Saturday night, you have fun when you go to the movies, you watch Star Wars because it's entertaining, right? And so what's the everybody loves Star Wars content marketing for pricing start to look like? And so that's where you see us trying to do things that are relevant to pricing, but that are also just entertaining to look at if you're not a pricer's pricer, you know what I mean? So earlier this year, we, we did a a content marketing campaign called streaming wars, where we looked at kind of all the different ways that video subscription services like Netflix and Disney plus and Hulu and Amazon have wrestled with pricing their subscriptions and offered value into those and the impacts that those have had with their customers and the hows and whys of pricing models and subscriptions around streaming and the maneuvering of those companies against each other, which is a pricing conversation. But it's also super interesting in the context of now everyone's stuck at home watching Netflix. And so whether you're a pricer or not, you know, you have some familiarity with this industry. And then the execution of it was we worked hard to parody the interface of Netflix to deliver the content, right? So we- We replicated the Netflix UI. We called the series Price Flicks, uh, which was kind of like a play on, you know, Netflix and price effects. So Price Flicks, you know, it was a blue P instead of a red and it would move forward towards you as you went into the content. (laughs) And it had the episodes, right, of the different chapters of the ebook. And that's just cool to engage with, right? And as long as you can kind of strike that balance of, hey, this is cool. I don't know if we would get as many readers for that if it was just presented as a white paper about the dynamics of streaming subscription pricing in the context of major competitors, right? You can see as a white paper, you'd be like, "Eh, I have to read this thing. But presenting it in that way, we got a lot of engagement out of that, right? Because it's like, oh, here's something that's both relevant to my job, maybe, or at least I can learn something that I didn't know about pricing in the context of something that's Mm -hmm. otherwise just interesting to me and presented in a cool way. So I'm a big fan of that kind of, how do you break outside of the bubble of pricing and look at pricing, not as a one topic conversation, but rather as pricing matters because it has this impact or because you look at it through this lens, it's different, or you didn't think this was a pricing thing, but actually it is a pricing thing, right? We do a series every fall called Pricing Horror Stories, where we go through our company and we go through our customers and we crowdsource nightmarish pricing scenarios, which by and large are just mistakes or goofs or software errors or whatever it is, strategic errors. But we package it up as like a Halloween special. It's sort of a horror story, you know, format or a ghost story format, fireside playing with that a little bit. Yeah, because why shouldn't it be cool? Why can't it be both fun and useful at the same time? And I think, you know, back to our double click on the mid funnel, you talked about cadence and you talked about, you know, tactics. The cadence of that stuff, I think there's a lot of missed opportunities in our pricing software industry around just seasonal relevance, right? Christmas Mm -hmm. shopping, stuff that everyone's doing already, whether you're a pricer or not, but our pricers, our core audience, like, They have kids, they're going to the movies, they're stuck at home, they're having holidays, you know, whatever it is, like that can add a dimension. And then also 
the cadence needs to be regular, right? If you have a regular cadence, but it's always a white paper that I have to force myself to read, that's a negative on that cadence. But if the cadence is, you can regularly expect the price effects is going to have some creative spin on something in the industry presented in a cool way every month or, you know, a couple things a quarter to keep it lively. That's how you're starting to drive that mid funnel engagement and taking that easy to get top of funnel action and figuring out, okay, who's really interested, who's picking up what I'm putting down. And look, that's not a replacement for doing the block and tackling stuff. Like we still got to do vertical specific problem specific stuff, right? What is margin leakage look like in the chemical process industry? Yes, you have to do that. And yes, you have to do that regularly. And the fresher you keep that conversation, the better so that yeah. you can drive engagement in those verticals. But I think we've tried hard to make room for that other stuff, the sort of 101 conversation, the everybody loves Star Wars kind of streaming wars, you know, different creative approach so that the customer is getting both of those experiences in service of sort of figuring out how to buy us, but also figuring out who we are as a brand. That's really cool. And if I kind of take a step back and connect the dots for some folks listening, so top of the funnel function of spend basically, and I'm assuming you're, you know, pushing content, pushing, you know, a bunch of things in that top of the funnel. Next layer down it sounds like you're doing two to three kind of cool, high impact content, but still educational pieces a quarter. And then yeah. you have kind of these layers in here, probably depending on workflows, but correct me if I'm wrong, of oh, yeah. this person's in the chemical industry and they showed interest in this, we'll send them that. And then that all kind of like falls into the the sales, the commercial team's laps, basically, yeah. you know, to yeah. kind of help. Is that kind of a good summary of what's going on? Yeah, it is. I think, you know, behind the scenes, we have a lot of the, what I would call traditional marketing funnel qualification functions happening, right? So we have a scoring and grading, you know, on our leads to say like, you know, what kind of a prospect is this? How important are they to us? How important are we to them? How often are they engaging? What are they engaging with? At what point do we feel like they're engaged enough that they can be contacted via email, right? Convert off the website or, you know, this year we implemented drift chatbot on our website and it's really been successful for us. And it's been really amazing to watch how drift has sort of cannibalized a lot of other tactical things in the middle and low funnel for us just because it's a great product, but also people love working with that, right? So we have the ability to flip between automated chatbot and live operator on our chatbot on the site so that our business development team can jump in in the middle of a conversation, say, oh, hey, you're back, or I see you're asking this question, let me point this thing to you. We have all those things in place that, again, as we think about content and we think about how do we take that kind of low qualified top of funnel stuff and drive qualification into it through content using content as like the sieve where maybe the bigger splashier creative content is sort of like a coarse grain sieve. And then as you get into the industry specific stuff or some of the webinars, or I would say that, you know, we produce a podcast on our side, which you've been a guest on is a coarse grain qualification tool, right? Where we yeah. meet people that way, they get to know us a little bit that way. The fine grain sieve at the bottom is where you have to nail that industry specific relevancy, where you have to nail that role type persona relevancy, where you have to be able to show 
good case study, like all the fundamentals of, you know, marketing credentially to drive confidence. We aim for by the time a lead is changing hands between marketing and sales that we have achieved enough confidence in the way we understand them through their behavior of our content writ large, that that salesperson can feel highly confident they're going to meet a customer who uh, is very interested in us, who we can do something meaningful for, and that there's a, a real business relationship to be had there. That's awesome. That's cool, man. Are you getting a lot of inbound basically? Like where does outbound come into play? And then- mm -hmm. The secondary part of this is kind of when do they get involved? Like, are they getting involved mm -hmm. at the the price flicks, you know, level? Are they getting involved at the bottom end of this, you know, see you? Yeah. Like, where do those things kind of come into play? Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer is we are attempting to build a sales and marketing funnel and demand organization that is highly conservative about time and effort investment from our direct sales people, mm. meaning we really want to try to use as much marketing and as much automation as possible to make sure that by the time we're getting a high grade enterprise salesperson involved, that there's a really good reason for them to be involved there. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple pieces to that one is this year we implemented this business development layer in the organization which is essentially an SDR layer, right? Yeah. That's been really, really helpful for us because we've tooled those people with a lot of technology that enables them to be super efficient in kind of sorting and filtering the different types of demand that are coming in. I would say today we are doing obviously both outbound and, and responding to inbound. Our inbound marketing is arguably more effective, right? We're seeing more inbound demand than we are able to create via outbound cold outreach, yeah. which is right because if we're doing our work in content marketing, we should be attracting more interest, right? And so if your content marketing is firing well, your people are finding you because you're answering questions for them that they're asking, not about you, but about things they're interested in. They're yeah. finding you. When they find you, they're finding out there's more to love than just the thing they came for, right? Yeah. You know, you're pulling them in and, and that's working well. And so there's a bigger block of our funnel that is inbound than outbound at this point. Yeah. And now we're still doing outbound outreach and we're using tools and that business development team is kind of constantly working with sales to build target lists and and approach companies who we don't see in the inbound pool to try and attract their attention. But, you know, the, the inbound stuff is definitely performing better. So that's sort of the mix. And then what's cool about that is the business development team has full access to the, the whole library of content, both from understanding what attracted those prospects to us in the first place, but also pointing them at other things that maybe they didn't find on their own to yeah. further reel them in, right? To the point where we can get to business development representative booking time with a prospect and a seller based on them having engaged with a series of emails and articles and attending a webinar and whatever it is. And I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think, I think that's yeah. in general, right? That to me is an indicator. And I'm never going to pretend that we're crushing it and everything is perfect, but sure. I believe we're in the right direction, which is that we're creating this sort of sticky, attractive content environment for prospects that is accessible to them that's answering questions for them that's getting them interested to learn more from us 
And that is helping us refine the conversation better and faster to optimize the time that a salesperson is ultimately going to spend with them. Our ideal state, I think, is that a salesperson is really never spending time with much of anything other than bottom of funnel, highly qualified opportunity. Part of that, I imagine you're not selling to just one person, right? Like I imagine right. it's multi-person sale and sometimes it can involve a lot of folks. Yeah, a 12-legged deal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do you work to get one person and then your sales team mm. can kind of spread? Is it, hey, yeah. we, we want to get three people and then the score is high enough that we'll yeah. get the sales? Like how do you think about the multi-person deals? Yeah, that's a great question. What I have been working on recently and what I'm pushing us towards for 2021 is this idea that enterprise software sales almost always require three to five distinct personalities to make a decision, right? And so, yes, you need role persona-based marketing, right? We must talk to the sales leader in a relevant way, which is probably different than the technology leader's relevant way. And we've got to be able to have both of those conversations simultaneously. But I'm starting to operate from the position that you don't get into those role-based persona conversations until you can show that you can speak to the enterprise persona first. And the way I think about that is if you think about understanding the collection of people that will be required to ultimately decide on and implement your technology, which in our case is this pricing software, if you understood each of their personas discreetly, but then you sort of summarized them together as if they were one person. So five voices, but in one body. And the body then becomes this enterprise psychographic that you can type out and you can start to understand that, yes, they have a really radical creative CMO and yes, they have a really highly risk averse IT person, right? And both of those guys have to sign off on us in order to get a deal done. When you take the radical creative CMO and the risk averse CTO, and you understand that initially you've got to talk to both of them with one voice, what you wind up with is kind of an enterprise psychographic where they meet in the middle. The risk of CTO can be open to change if he perceives that the creative crazy CMO who's driving the change can appreciate the risks mitigation that he's going to want to make true. And so that there you wind up, and I'm being simplistic about it, right? Because it's actually probably way more complicated than that, but you wind up with an enterprise personality type that's sort of like moderately risk averse, provided that the solution isn't, is creatively beneficial enough to mitigate the risks, right? That gives you a line of sight on how to have a conversation with both of those people at the same time that I don't know if you would get to if you just tried to say, okay, well, our positioning is X, and then we've got to pivot it this way to be risk accountable and this way to be perceived as dramatically innovative, right? And, you know, we haven't launched any of this. We're in the process of building it, but I'm super interested in this idea of building ideal customer profiles that treat the role type personas in the organization in a way that creates an enterprise persona for the company itself, right? So how can you understand a collection of people's personalities as one psychographic type that then enables our organization to talk to that organization in a way that resonates? So if I'm talking to the CTO, I get a little bit more like, we're secure, we're innovative, you know, we don't take that much time, you know, to implement that type of thing. (laughs) 
and CMO is going to be different. How do you square it so you don't become so yeah. average or general with the like? Like, yeah. how do you get both of them? Well, because the that's a great question. So I think the way that we're going to do it is we're going to yeah. start to move away from the role types being the definitions of the considerations. So instead, sure. we start to look at you know how does this organization buy technology? Do they have a rigid, structured approach? or are they more adaptive, cooperative, or are they more dynamic in the way that yeah. they buy technology, right? And you can know that by looking at what technology have they bought in the past or what are they using today, sure. right? What is the enterprise's approach to organizational change? Hmm. Is it centrally driven from the top down or is it sort of department by department? What needs to be true for sweeping change to occur in this organization? Or is it even possible as an indicator of sort of how rigid or flexible is the company as a whole when it comes to thinking about things like, hey, we should adopt a global, you know, centrally managed pricing and CPQ solution, right? Which, yes, is a technology buying decision, but it's also a who's going to use it and how are they going to use it decision, right? Yeah. Is the organization an authoritarian organization where the only thing that matters is convincing the CEO that it's right and that then it's made so? And those companies are out there, right? Yeah, definitely. Or is it a democratic type of process when it comes to implementing change? Or is it anarchaic type of change where change is just driven by somebody figured out to do something a new way and it worked. And so everyone's like, okay, that worked. We're doing it that way now, right? So I think it's, if you treat the enterprise as if it were a person and you start to look at how does the enterprise behave and you start to put some structure into the types of decisions that enterprises need to make and how they make them, you can start to get a sense of what would be an effective communication strategy for this enterprise yeah. And this is, by the way, we're going to test a lot of this stuff, right? So we're sure. going to start yeah, to test cool. out, hey, we think the enterprise type for this company is like this because here's the signals that we have. And we think they think about technology like this. We think they think about organizational change like this. We think they think about their marketing and branding like this. And so we're going to try to talk to them like this. And if we can show that we can do that, right, I believe we'll earn the right to get into a conversation where then we can go and specifically have those role type persona conversations and they will be earned. So they'll be welcome, but they'll also be more contextual because now we know we've uncovered a connection point with the company that everyone sort of says, okay, all right. And now we can take it from that position and say, okay, well, so the risk averse CTO piece of that was about this and let's go deep in there. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Where can people find you? Anything you want to plug? I got a lot to learn and a lot to study from our combo, but where can people find uh, thanks. you? Thanks. Well, I appreciate you having me on. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Shy Media Guy and it's C-H-I for Chicago, Shy Media Guy, all one word. And otherwise, everything about me is at priceeffects.com. Awesome, man. Well, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. A huge shout out to Patrick Moorhead for being on the podcast. Now you have what it takes to be a skilled communicator. On today's episode, we talked about making pricing accessible, tech-enabled demand generation, the rich tapestry cadence of MoFu, creating a sticky, attractive content environment, and the tackling of the 12-legged deal. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell in the show, we would appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and... We like appeasing the podcast gods. 
Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 